In this episode of 2000 Books, Tina Selig, the director of Stanford Technology Ventures program, teaches us the most important difference between those who succeed in their entrepreneurial ventures and those who don't. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Dr. Tina Selig is the director of Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the entrepreneurship center at Stanford University's School of Engineering. She teaches courses on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship at Stanford. Dr. Selig earned a PhD in neuroscience from Stanford University School of Medical Sciences, where she studied neuroplasticity. And she has written 17 books and educational games. Today, we're talking about her book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, a crash course on making your place in the world. Tina, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. So um, this is a great book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And even no matter how old you are, you want to go back and figure out what I wish I knew when I was younger. So tell us, tell us your story and your business story and what led you to writing this book. Yeah, so my story is very circuitous. People often ask me, so how did you go from being a neuroscientist to teaching innovation to engineers? I, I did study neuroscience. I got my PhD at Stanford Med School, and I really wanted uh, to see my ideas out in the world, not necessarily just research papers. And so I ended up uh, talking my way into several different roles out in industry. Um, I was a management consultant at Booz Allen for a couple of years. I was a multimedia producer at Compaq. I started a couple of companies. And I've also written, uh, at this point, it's 17 books. So I've done a lot of different things. And for the last 17 years, actually, I have been teaching entrepreneurship and innovation at Stanford. It is one of the most exciting things. And uh, it's, of course, certainly new every single day. Yeah. Uh, and I've been following your work through your podcast and through the YouTube channel and all that stuff. It's been, it's been a joy to learn from you. So thank you very much for all that you do. Thank you. Yeah. Um, now let's jump into the book. I, I'm really excited to talk about it. And, uh, you know, as I as I read the book and as I stepped back from the book, I think the, the idea that stuck with me, and that's probably one of the biggest ideas, was giving ourselves permission. And that's something that kind of was kind of was also a theme that I've ran through Steve Jobs' biography. But I would love for you to unfold this idea for us. Yeah, it's super super important to understand that you are in charge of writing the script for your life. It's not someone else. But so many people go through life thinking that there's a right answer and that somebody else is going to give it to them. We go through school where we're given problems with uh, multiple choice questions, uh, a number two pencil. There's certainly a right answer. But once you get out of school, you really need to realize that the world is vast with incredible opportunities. And it's really up to you to carve your own path. I know it took me a long time to figure this out. Um, and it was a huge aha when I realized that I was it was possible to break free from the constraints of the things that other people wanted. In fact, I tell my students all the time that they're the customer uh, when they come to school. Uh, they look at me a little funny because they 
have so come to believe that their teachers are in charge. And I said, you know what? You're paying your tuition. You're coming here. If you, you choose that you want to spend all your time in your room uh, coding up some project for a new company or if there's some extracurricular project that you're most excited about, you know what? Yes, of course, there'll be consequences. You might not do as well in your classes, but that's certainly your choice. Yeah, it's 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 like we've been indoctrinated over these years, centuries, decades, whatever you want to call it, to 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 believe that we've got to get to a certain level. We got to go through college in order to do something. We got to get a certain kind of job in order to do something, or we've got to get a certain title in order to be able to do something. But the giving ourselves permission is the idea that it doesn't matter what uh, what kind of uh, honors or degrees or accolades or anything else that are being given to us. It doesn't matter. All of that is irrelevant. We just have to give ourselves the permission to go after our dreams and people stop themselves from doing that. Exactly. And it's fascinating. If you talk to most people who have had some success in their career and you ask them their story, it usually is filled with tremendous number of surprises. You need to go out and engage in the world. One of the things I, am, um, I tell my students all the time is that when you get a job, you are not getting that job. You're mm. getting the keys to the building. Yeah. And I've found that that is absolutely the case. Once you go into an organization, if you're really paying attention, you're going to see incredible opportunities. So what you want to do is put yourself in a position where you're surrounded by really interesting people and interesting challenges where you can then go say, wow, there's a problem I want to solve. And once you solve it, it ends up opening up a tremendous number of doors. Yeah, it's it's like we're giving ourselves the permission to challenge assumptions, to 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 experiment with stuff, to to test, you know, in, even to test the limits of what we're made of, and to see the world as you're saying in, in this case, to see the world as full of opportunity rather than a world where someone is going to define our role and our opportunities. So let me just actually even give you just a, a small personal example because mm-hmm. 17 years ago when I started working at Stanford, I came in as a staff member, you know, a a junior staff member, uh, helping, you know, as on the administrative side to start building this entrepreneurship center. And uh, no one would expect that 17 years later, I would be a professor in the department. But what I did was I saw tons of opportunities around me and I kept volunteering. One of my colleagues didn't want to teach a class on creativity. And I said, you know what, let me raise my hand. I'll do it. Uh, Give me a chance, you know, put me in coach. And I did that. And if you think about it, it takes about four years to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. You know, so it means in four years, you can become a real master in a field. Well, I was able to do that. And so became went from being, um, you know, a, an, a, an administrator to being a teacher to ultimately becoming a professor. Uh, this is a very unlikely path. But you know what? Unless you actually visualize it and put yourself out there, it's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's the the whole idea of putting yourself out there, and it, and I want to go back to that Steve Jobs quote, and I might I might not get it right completely, but I think he said that the world is made up of made up by or the world is made by people who were no smarter than you and I, but they just decided that, or they just said that this is the way I see it, and they went and did whatever they needed to do rather than the others who said the world is made by people who are not who are smarter than you and I so I got to follow the rules exactly and you have to engage in the world and envision what you want to see happen now of course 
course, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of hard work and that there are going to be a lot of disappointments. Um, it was funny. Um, I don't think of myself as a very brave person, but uh, someone who is very highly placed uh, said to me, you know, Tina, you're the bravest person I know. And I thought about it. And I thought, how could that possibly be the case? And I realized it's because I'm very comfortable putting myself out there and trying things I haven't done before. And I deeply, deeply encourage other people to do that. Because if you take a risk, now the key is to not take huge risks, but mm -hmm. to take small risks, to do small experiments. You know, you go talk to someone and you say, hey, you know what? Nobody wants to teach that class. Can I do it? Well, gee, what would happen if they said no? No one's going to die. Okay, I say fine. Thank you very much. It was an idea. So if you are willing to put your ideas out there, you get really wonderful feedback. And every once in a while, a really cool opportunity comes your way. Yeah. And in the process, uh, we also fail. I mean, failure is part of this process. Failure is part of this journey. And as you said, you, you're open to that. You're open to the possibility that things may not work out. And, uh, and I think that's the, that's the other thing I really enjoyed in the book, where you're talking about how Failure is just, it's, it's something we embrace as part of the journey when it's, a, especially as an entrepreneur, you, there's just no success without failure. I want to, I want to underline that, um, and bold it and italic it. And I want to change the word because I really think the word failure is, leads people to think that something really bad is going to happen, but you have to look at failure as data. Hmm. I'm a scientist by training, and when you do an experiment in science and the results turn out differently than you expect, that's valuable data. And in fact, some of the most exciting uh, developments in science have always come from unusual data that was unexpected. So if you look at the experiments in your life as um, incredible opportunities to learn something, then those failures become incredible uh, data to move you to the next experiment. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a scientist myself in the sense that I'm an engineer, I'm a physicist, and I have seen this over and over again in my life that as long as I allow myself to see my failure as a, a point of feedback, as a, as a place where I can learn from, I can continue to grow. But as soon as I think of it as, the, as a final statement, then I am in trouble. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was younger, um, I used to spend myself beating myself up for my failures. You know, if I said something wrong in a meeting or I messed something up, I would just really perseverate on it for days or weeks. Now, having that mindset that failure is a learning opportunity, I really go to great lengths to mine it for insights and then go on saying, okay, I'm not going to do that again. In fact, I have my students write failure resumes. Uh, of course, at first, they're not particularly delighted about that prospect, but soon learn how valuable it is. Because if you, if you actually capture your failures and figure out what you've learned from each one of them, you know, personal, professional, academic, uh, you're going to find that um, it really propels you forward much more quickly than if you don't, than if you sort of turn your back and say, oh my gosh, I don't want to look at that. That was embarrassing. Yeah, it's it's like and the more research, like there's so much research that's now coming out that talks about the importance of perseverance and persistence and grit and that mental toughness. That's the most important ingredient of success that, that you know, being able to stand up to that failure and keep on going. And there's a line in that book, and I'm not sure if you said it or if someone else said it, but the idea that bot the bottom is lined with rubber, not concrete for successful people. Yeah, it's such a visual. Exactly. In fact, um, I'd love to think about 
that all the time. You know, when you hit bottom, what is the bottom made of? Is it made of rubber and you bounce back? Is it made of concrete and you go splat? Is it made of shards of glass that rip you up and leave scars? Um, I've asked um, groups of people uh, to define this for themselves and to share with each other. And it's so amazing to see the, the visual images people come up with. In fact, I encourage the listeners to think about that. When they fail, what's the bottom made of? You know, is it a mattress that you hit and sort of go to sleep? Is it a deep tunnel you fall into and never escape? Um, and to think about whether you can change the bottom. Can you make it more flexible? Can you make it more forgiving? Can you make it um, into something that propels you forward in a way that as opposed to pushing you back? Mm-hmm. And and that's something. It seems like it's a journey of a lifetime because it's it's something where we're going to continue to get better at, and it's uh, uh, it's something that we can con- or we can elect to continue to get better at. Some people probably will not elect that. Some people will decide for it to be a concrete bottom rather than a rubber bottom. And um, uh, towards the end of the interview, I'm going to ask for specific action items. But how does someone go about changing this? How does because I I feel like. It's really hard for people to change something as fundamental as this perspective in life. Yeah. One is to realize it's a choice, right? Mm. I mean, a lot of people go through life and think that they don't have any control over the the way they respond to the world around them. They sort of feel as though things come at them and they just respond in some in some way that feels very natural as opposed to saying, hey, I actually have a choice here. I can choose to lean into uh, the situation or I can avoid it um, and to really question the fact uh, that that you actually have a, a choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. So it's actually just um, being uh, give, empowering yourself in some ways and saying, I do have a choice in this matter and this is the way I will see it. And that changes your uh, perspective and changes the game for you. Exactly. Yeah. And there's another another line that, again, you know, I, I was so, uh, so fascinated by. You said, we often live on the edge of success and failure, and it's really rarely clear uh, which way we will land. And that's so true in entrepreneurship. I might think that this is going to be a great, great idea, a great, great product, falls flat. And then another one, which I don't necessarily know if it will succeed or fail, uh, or if I think it may not be the best, but turns out to be great. It's it's never, never 100% clear. Exactly. And there's so many variables. Of course, there's the team you have, there's the timing, there's the investment, there's, you know, getting one, you know, one news article that someone reads and propels you to fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes it actually exciting is that it may, the world is filled with lots and lots of surprises. And to be be willing to engage with them and to be and to celebrate them as opposed to be fearful of the uncertainty. In fact, I believe that uncertainty is something that we should be excited about. I mean, would you really want a script for your life that you're playing out Mm. without any changes? you know, and sort of know what's going to happen for the next 20, 40, 50, 60 years. No, that's what makes life interesting. And each day we can do experiments. In fact, um, can I tell you about an experiment that I'm doing right now? Absolutely. We love stories. We love experiments, anecdotes, so whatever you want to tell us. Absolutely. Great. So, of course, I wrote this book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And I wrote that book for my son as he was going off to college. I was uh, particularly... um, 
anxious because he was a pretty sharp guy and uh, I know he could do well in school, but I realized there were a lot of things that are beyond the classroom that, that he wasn't taught. And so I started making a list of all these things and, and that turned into the book. So I'm reaching a big milestone. Um, I'm going to be 60 next year. And uh, I decided to do a project called 60 Weeks to 60. Mm. And uh, every single week for 60 weeks, I'm giving myself another challenge. And the idea is to really challenge myself to, in terms of my skills, in terms of the way I look at the world, challenge myself from a creative perspective. And I'm already 11 weeks into it, and it's been really, really exciting. Nice. 60 weeks to 60. I love it. Yeah. And in fact, people are welcome to follow it. I'm, I'm blogging about it. I have a, a blog on Medium, which and it's um, the series is 60 Weeks to 60. Uh, but uh, it's fascinating. You know, I've done everything from taking things out of my life, like having a social media fast or no radio for a week, uh, to creative projects where every single day having to make a one-minute movie or, um, you know, with a little script, a little, you know, plot line, a one-minute story, uh, to doing artwork, to learning French. So um, it's been quite interesting, and I've realized that the process of creative problem solving requires constant practice. You know, Mm -hmm. just as the Olympic athletes are out there stretching their muscles and toning their 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 bodies, you need to tone your mind because the type of work that we're talking about really is a lot of mental uh, gymnastics, and you need to learn those skills. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely mental gymnastics, and uh, you never know when. Your time comes in terms of your success starts to blossom, but we got to keep at it. We got to keep at it. And uh, I think uh, there's a there's a story from Carol Bards in the book that you talk about where she says that a successful career is not a straight line, but a wave with ups and downs. And exactly. In fact, I think the metaphor she uses is sort of moving around a pyramid going at that. It's really a three dimensional path as opposed to a two dimensional path going up. And it's really critical to realize that uh, you're going to take on uh, opportunities and they're going to be surprising things that happen to you. Um, I, I think of the number of times in my life and also watching my, my friends and my students who have stumbled upon opportunities that uh, launched them into uh, incredible um, new ventures. Uh, I'll give an example that I actually talk about in my book, Insight Out. Um, Justin Rosenstein, uh, who's quite a sharp young man and he was at Facebook and he got frustrated with the amount of time that was spent just managing the workflow of a day and the coordination between a team and he created just an internal tool at Facebook uh, to help teams collaborate with each other Mm -hmm. and he found that this tool was so successful and so uh, useful that he decided to leave Facebook and go and start another company, Asana, which is now doing incredibly well, creating basically a platform for team collaboration. And uh, this would never have happened. He never would have started this new company had he not been paying attention to the opportunity within Facebook. And to say, you know what? Actually, 
this problem that I solve for myself is one that might be really, really valuable to other people. And this is true. You can look at people like Sal Khan, who started Khan Academy. I mean, that was a perfect example where he was putting together some videos for his uh, cousin who was struggling in math and was paying attention when he realized that other people were using these materials, left his job in finance to go launch Khan Academy, which, of course, we all know the story has been incredibly impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, uh yeah, he, he, Khan Academy is absolutely amazing, and of course, I use Asana as well. But the the, the key, I think, uh, and this this probably could, takes us to the next uh, point of discussion, which is like these guys were trying, were just doing things that they enjoyed doing. They were doing things for the for the fun of it, in the sense, or maybe they were they had the zeal to solve a bigger problem, or they had some sort of purpose. So they were not in it just to make money, and I think that's the key distinction there. Well, this is a really important point, and I want to emphasize it. Before something is your passion, it's something you know nothing about, mm. right? So Sal Khan was not an expert in education. He was in finance. But as he started getting involved with the world of teaching and realizing what was broken, where the opportunities were, he then became passionate about solving this problem, right? Justin Rosenstein was not an expert on workflow processes until he realized it was a problem. And as he started getting more more involved, this became his passion. And people often make the mistake that they need to look inside their head Mm. and do deep soul searching to figure out what their passion is. But your passions come from your experiences, not the other way around. Absolutely. This is such a critical distinction. I think uh, as entrepreneurs, and especially today in this world, we're like, we look at the end product. We look at, um, you know, Warren Buffett saying, yeah, if you're going to do something that you're going to enjoy, then everything is fun. And same Bill Gates says that. And we look at all these people who have, been through the journey for 50 years and they're telling us the end product of the journey what we don't know is where they started and how they got started and how specifically these things unfolded for them well exactly in fact i uh, um was listening to some old podcasts of mark zuckerberg from 2005 talking about the facebook and the vision for the company at that time was so different than it is now mm-hmm. and it could have just stayed with the original vision and stagnated and maybe even gone out of business. But because they they were so engaged with paying attention and being willing to innovate, they were able to parlay those initial early experiments with the product to turn into this, you know, global, global platform uh, for, you know, people to engage with each other. Yeah, it's it's like our motivations change and Kind of what some of the in one way I, I like to think of it, it's purify over time. They 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 improve or they they they, they uh, modify themselves over time. But just we can't wait for the perfect motivation. We can't wait for the perfect purpose or passion to take action. So really interesting point here: motivation. Most people do not tap into or even understand their motivations. I do some exercises with my students where I have them draw a matrix, a two by two matrix. Mm. And on the vertical axis is passion and the horizontal axis is confidence and require them to put, you know, one posted in each of these quadrants. So one thing that you're highly passionate and highly confident, one thing you're highly passionate and not confident, one thing you're highly, highly confident, but not passionate. And one thing where you're neither 
passionate nor confident. And the amazing thing is how hard it is for people to do this. Mm-hmm. They have to really rack their mind and, and they think, wow, this is about me. This is something I should actually already know, you know, about what things I'm passionate about, what things I'm confident. But you need to be self-aware because you're doing things all day long that are inspired by your motivations. And yet when you, if you're not tuned into what motivates you, uh, you're going to be making decisions that you might not even yourself understand. Um, it's, uh, critical, critical to take the time to really think about this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, we've been talking about all these amazing ideas, giving ourselves permission and, uh, about how failure is really important in success. And, understanding our purpose, understanding our um, the importance of purpose and passion and motivation. But, you know, a class with a professor is never complete without some homework, Tina. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re- ask you to give us uh, some homework. Give us some homework based on this book. Give us three specific pieces of action items or homework or exercises that we can go home and do them today and get some real experience and value out of this. Great. Okay. I'm really good at giving homework. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I'm going to give you a bunch of things that people could do. Okay. Absolutely. One is you can fill out this confidence passion matrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, it won't take you that long, but it will give you some interesting insights about um, where um, where you're putting your time and effort. And one thing to keep in mind is um, the things that you're confident in are things you pr- things you probably do and spend effort and time and um energy on. And the things you're passionate about are things where you have the, an attitude that gets you to the place where you're, you care about it. And you realize your attitudes and your actions, you control, right? You control your attitude and you control your actions. So when you look at the things that are in this matrix, you realize that these things are not immutable. You can move the things in these post-its to different quadrants depending upon changing your attitudes and actions. For example, if you have skiing in the quadrant that is high passion but low confidence, well, the way you're going to get more confident is practicing skiing. If you have something where you're highly confident but not passionate, let's say it's cooking, let's say you're really good at cooking but you're not, don't care about it, what could you do to hmm. change your mindset so that you actually cared about it more. Maybe you're going to learn a new technique or maybe uh, you're going to gamify it. Uh, Whatever it is, how do you change your attitudes and actions? Another assignment um, that takes a little bit longer is to write out where you want to be. Tell a story, write a story about where you will be in 10 or 20. It could even be five years Hmm. because once you visualize it, it gives you some a way to create a roadmap to get there. If you don't have a picture of the future you want to create for yourself, it's unlikely you're going to get there and you're going to stay in your one place, right? If I don't plan a vacation, I'm not going to go on vacation. If I don't plan my life, I'm not going to have the life I design. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in the same way, that right, just as you might plan a vacation, how do I plan the unvacation? How do I plan what I'm doing not when I'm not on vacation? And how do I get there? Mm. So so just write out, uh, visualize and write it out in as much detail as you can. Exactly. And then you can always go back and think about what steps do you need to, to get there? What are, what are the stepping stones? Just like I have to plan a vacation, I need to get my airline tickets. I need to get my train. I need to make my hotel reservations. I need to get a guide. What are the steps you need to get to the destination in your life? Got it. 
And I think uh, we we're looking for one more, but I think you referred to it vaguely during the interview, which was the failure resume. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's always a great thing to keep going as an ongoing project uh, to write your failure resume. Uh, it's pretty uh, eye-opening. And in fact, in what I wish I knew when I was 20, I included my own failure resume. Uh, what happened is I gave an early version of the book uh, to one of my students to read to give her feedback. And she said, gosh, I like this idea of the failure resume. Can you show me an example and I thought, well, whose example am I going to show? Someone else's? So uh, I decided to write my own, which I had not done yet. Mm. And uh, it was a great experience. And in fact, now every time I do something uh, about which I am not proud, I uh, think about, okay, where would this fit on my failure resume and what did I learn from it? So w w what are the steps for writing this failure resume essay or resume, I guess? W so what, what I would do is I would create different categories and it could be personal, professional, academic. You know, if you're an athlete, it could be athletics. Um, you know, it could be any categories you want and then start capturing the things that you did. You know, it might be uh, professional and you go, you know what, um, on that project that I did last month, I didn't put the effort in to really knock the ball out of the park. Uh, or when I was in that meeting, I shouldn't have interrupted my boss. You know, whatever it was, it could be very granular, or it could be very large. And it might be, you know, I didn't get into the college I wanted. You know, let me look back. What did I, what did I not do, you know, in the years preceding? And how is that going to change the way I think about the next goal I have? Mm. And sometimes the failure can actually be a good thing in the sense that that failure allowed you to propel yourself towards a greater career or a better, bigger calling. Oh, my goodness. I am a huge believer that when things don't work out, usually something better is right around the corner. Uh, that's certainly been the case for me. You know, you don't get some job you really, really, really wanted, and then something much more interesting uh, materializes, and you think, wow, I am so glad I was available for that opportunity. Now, I am an eternal optimist, but I really do believe, really believe that every problem is an opportunity for a creative solution, and that the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. In fact, uh, we have that written on the wall in our office, along with one other uh, big sign that I feel strongly about. It says, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with, with much less than seems possible. Mm. And that's important to realize that it's about seizing opportunities. It's about leveraging resources and making things happen. Nice, nice. So, uh, Tina, this has been so much fun, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in a spot here. I'm going to say, if you were to give your 20-year-old one line to, to live his life by, what would it be? It would be, take as many calculated risks as you can, because you never know what's going to be on the other side. Boom. All right. Well, before we end the interview, Tina, tell us how to get hold of you. What are your most, you know, what are the other fun projects you're working on right now and all the good stuff? Great. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at T Seelig, T S E E L I G. I also have a blog on Medium. Uh, it should be pretty easy to find as Tina Seelig. And I'm blogging about my 60 Weeks to 60 project on that site. Right, right, and you are you have a couple of podcasts as well, and something new is exactly, coming up. Exactly, exactly. Um, people can listen to the lecture series uh, I host at Stanford, the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Lecture Series. That's at ecorner.stanford.edu, and um, I highly recommend it. And I'm launching a brand new podcast, which is called Stanford Innovation Lab, that should be also available at eCorner. 
That's great. Well, thank you very much, Tina. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So, my ambitious friends, I have two important questions for you. First off, are you just listening to these podcasts or are you really taking action on them? Because in this world, there are no results without action. The best thing you can do right now as you've listened to this podcast is to go download the free action guide of this interview at 2000books.com slash summary and start working on that action guide. Edgar Dale's research, which is now known as the cone of learning, has shown that one of the best ways to retain what you learn is to move from passive learning mode to taking action on the ideas. And that way you remember up to 90% of what you just learned even two weeks from now, compare that to 10% if you just read something. So don't let this time you invested in listening to this podcast go to waste. Go get the action guide for free at 2000books.com slash summary, or you can text the word summary to 44222, and we will send you access to the action guide. Okay, here's the second question I have for you. Are you a visual learner? Because I am. I'm a very visual learner, and I often find that the wonderful ideas I read or listen to get lost in my mind somewhere. A few days later, I just can't place them in my mind. So I started creating mind maps of everything I was learning. These mind maps make it really easy for me to get a big picture overview of a book and also zoom into the smallest possible details with a couple of clicks. Also, the ideas are visually laid out for me to see, and hence, they don't get muddled in my mind. You remember the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, I think these mind maps are the closest things to a picture of the book, a snapshot of the book. So if you would like to get this book's mind map for free, go to 2000books.com slash summary, or you can text the word summary to 44222, and we will send you the mind map. So a lot of you have asked me how I consume seven books a week. Well, I do read a lot, but I also listen to audiobooks when I'm driving, when I'm working out, when I'm running errands, when I'm out running. It's such a great use of my time. And not only that, I listen to the books at three times the normal speed. Yeah, it's 3x. So I consume a six-hour-long book in two hours flat. I just love Audible for that. And I've been using it for years now. And right now, you can... Give Audible a try by signing up for a free trial membership and get any audiobook in their library for free. And if you don't like it, just cancel the trial membership and you won't be charged anything. However, you still get to keep the audiobook forever for free. So to avail this offer, just head on over to 2000books.com slash free. That's 2000books.com slash F-R-E-E free. Well, until next time, my ambitious friends. Go out and live a courageous life.